Hello to all you boys next door, mums and dads, new weds and nearly deads, and welcome to Dangerous Amusements, a podcast where we talk about the music of Elvis Costello. I'm Stu Arrowsmith, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to chat all things Elvis, and I'll be asking them to help me compile the ultimate Elvis Costello playlist. Now remember, don't make any sudden movements, because these are Dangerous Amusements. My guest on this episode is a science fiction writer, critic and academic, a professor of 19th century literature and culture. Welcome to Dangerous Amusements, Professor Adam Roberts. Hi Stu, it's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to have you on, how are you? I'm all right, I'm all right. I'm I'm not doing so well in the heat. And I was explaining earlier before we started recording, I live in Ascot in Berkshire and it's it's Royal Ascot this week. And during Royal Ascot, if you're a resident, the whole world goes mad and it's, it's everything's locked down and kind of crammed with people in top hats and fancy dresses. And it's just it's all a bit insane. But that finishes on Saturday and then we can get back to normal. Well, we're grateful for you picking your way through the traffic to get back and uh, and record today. Thank you for that. I was telling you, I've put myself in the mood for this by listening again to all the songs that you've picked for the playlist and also rereading the article that you wrote recently, which was all about your love of Elvis Costello. Yeah, I, I mean, I blog quite a lot. And my friend Pam, who was one of your guests a, a couple of months ago, suggested I come on this podcast because we're both massive Elvis fans. And it was, it was, that, it was that prompt. And then the question that you asked, which is I have to pick, one Elvis track per decade, which I'm sure all your guests say this, but I'll say it right up front. That's easier for some decades than for others, Mm. Um, particularly the 80s. And the 80s were the decade I really got into Elvis, and there was just a a run of of albums through that decade where we're packed with amazing songs. And trying to think my way around that, I thought, well, it often works for me as a writer, to work out what I think about something, I write it out and then it will come clear to me. I don't sit and cogitate and then put my words on on paper. So I did write, well, turned out to be quite a long blog post about Elvis and my relationship with him. Yeah, and you've set the bar here for future guests. I think, you know, if, if you're listening <laughs> in, when you agree to come on the show, you have to write a couple of thousand word uh, article about it. And then, you know, that's the yeah. prerequisite now. I think you should up the stakes, make it at least a book. You've got to write at least a book about Elvis. Yeah, yeah. Memoir, my time with Elvis, but yeah. Yeah, oh, good stuff. Well, I know from that article, and we'll we'll put a link up to the article as well when the pod goes out so people can have a read of it, but your way into Elvis's music was via Blood and Chocolate. So yeah, so that was the, that was the first album I really, I mean, I was aware of him before that. So uh, I'm of that generation and i was born in the mid 60s and i was growing up in the 70s and i went to university i went to aberdeen university in 1984 um so i was aware of him before he i mean those rare occasions where he kind of grazes the charts so you know oliver's army let's say everyone remembers that and i had i had no kind of animus against him i was no great fan either but then i was an undergraduate at, at aberdeen and a friend of mine had the blood and chocolate had it on cassette which again really dates me and they released they released it in a kind of promotional package where the outside of the cassette came in a kind of bourneville chocolate case and that was the the edition that they had and they, they lent it to me and i listened to it and i completely fell for it i thought well, this is amazing where's this music been all my life mm. so before that as i say in the blog i my tastes were very kind of middle brown really i listened you know the beatles over and over again as kind of chart music i didn't have abstruse taste but this was something kind of new and on the strength of that then i went and bought all the rest of his back catalogue and then I went through a phase and I'm still kind of in that phase where I buy everything he releases as soon as he releases it and um, I don't know if I'm quite as obsessed with him as I was back then in the 80s and that kind of first great flush Hmm. and I still think Blood and Chocolate I mean uh, for me Blood and Chocolate King of America and Imperial Bedroom uh, again it's a completely orthodox view I know but that's the pinnacle of Elvis that those are the albums I go back to most often Hmm. And what was it you were getting from Blood and Chocolate that kind of switched the light on for you with Elvis? I think it was the combination that you get with him where, and, and people don't necessarily talk about his his kind of melodic gifts as a songwriter, but I think he is really gifted that way. He writes really, really good pop songs, but he has this particular sensibility, which is a bit more abrasive, a bit more penetrating. 
a bit more sarcastic, sometimes a bit angry, particularly in that era when he was producing music. And that those two things going together, they just really clicked for me. And I, I suppose it had to do with where I was in my life and my, you know, my personality and the, the way I see things. But I really, I'm not sure anyone else has quite his, his combo. Mm-hmm. And what about in your peer group at university when you were starting to listen? Was he an artist that other uh, students at the time would have been listening to? No, not really. Um, I mean, I was, I'm trying to think back to what everybody was, was into back then. Um, I, I shared a flat with uh, a couple of guys, one of whom was absolutely mad for Joy Division, and had a kept a day of silence on the anniversary of Ian Curtis's oh, death, really? right. as a kind of respect, and had all the Joy Division bootlegs and bought all the New Order stuff. So there was that, which is again, is it's not, it's not Elvis, obviously, but there's some, there's a kind of slight crossover there, isn't there, in, in a kind of broader sensibility. It's not mm. shiny, happy people, sunny pop music. There's some something a little bit darker that's going on there. Mm. Uh, but it was then I, I finished it undergraduate and I went to Cambridge and did a PhD, which was my path into academia, which is why I'm now a professor. And at Cambridge, I met people, including Pam, who we were just talking about, who were kind of big time into Elvis Costello. And that, that kind of that was a step change in my relationship with him, I suppose. Mm. Okay, well, let's delve into that relationship a bit more by starting to go through some of the songs that you've picked out for us. I've asked you to help compile a playlist for this season by choosing six Costello songs, one from each decade from the 70s to the 2020s. This playlist is called Fortunate Stiffs, and that'll be on the website dangerousamusements.co.uk at the end of the season. Now, the song that you were going to pick from the 1970s is already on the playlist, courtesy of Sebastian Chris. that's Green Shirt. You've picked another one, and we will get to that. But before we talk about that one, just what was it about Green Shirt that made you want to put that one on? It's such a great song. It's such. I mean, I'm I'm literally wearing a green shirt. I don't always <laughs> wear green shirts. I don't walk around in red shoes the way Elvis used to in his youth. It's not that kind of relationship. It's the. <laughs> I, I think for me, and I, I'm gonna maybe come at this from a slightly different angle to some of your other guests i don't know maybe not maybe that's uh, it's the lyrics are the first way in and i find the lyrics of green shirt kind of endlessly fascinating kind of wonderful and expressive and the fact that they're set to this, this kind of superb stuttering kind of noise in the in the background and the particular kind of chiming of the keyboards and the, the particular melody that he sings it all just fits together into a, into a wonderful and I know it sounds pompous, it sounds a bit pretentious, but a wonderful work of art. Mm. And I think it's that early phase in particular when he was particularly engaged with um, questions of kind of political questions to do with authority, to do with kind of fascism, actually. And he was seeing a kind of resurgence of the right, racism and kind of neo-Nazis. Not, alas, not something that's gone away as we sit here in 2022. Uh, in many ways, it's got worse. But that that's a that's what that song is it's a kind of critique of of fascism it's about the way that those political attitudes kind of structure not just society and how we vote and uh, political organizations but our lives and the way we interact with one another and the way they construe a kind of cruelty a kind of power over horror actually mm-hmm. um but it, i mean i can't I'm not surprised someone else has chosen it. It's a great, it's a great song. Yeah, I like it when people talk about the same songs because everybody brings their own personal perspective. So it's great to hear your take on that song as well. Green shirt is on the playlist, so that does give you the bonus of both being able to talk about that and then pick another one from the 1970s. Uh, and you have chosen "Pump It Up."
several of the songs I've chosen, which we'll come to in a little bit, are slower and often really quite elegiac or mournful or beautiful. But the music that really kind of punched through to me was the, the stuff he writes in the 70s and 80s that is so much more driven, that has a real propulsion to it. And this is one of those songs, isn't it? It's such a fantastic bass line. And his, his kind of vocal attack is so sharp and so staccato. And that's what the song is about as well. It's about a particular kind of intensity. Mm. And that's something that you talk a little bit about in the article as well, isn't, as well, isn't it? Some of Elvis's approach to relationships, to love. Uh, there was a line that you used in there as well when you said that Costello is a man acutely and sometimes agonisingly aware of both the brutalities of masculinity and its insecurities. Yeah, and also it's it's kind of energies and it's exhilarations and that kind of strange mix of all those things. And it isn't a coincidence that he's, you know, he's a small, bespectacled man in a world where that's not the that's not the ideal of kind of masculine pulchritude. That's not what women are supposed to go for. Not that he's had any trouble, um, but that sense that he doesn't quite fit. And that sense, I think, it took me a while to really understand punk i was a bit too young i think when punk first hit and we talk about elvis as a kind of post-punk or new wave artist he's not really punk and i think the 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 kind of best qualities of the best punk which is its directness and its kind of forcefulness and the way it channels particular kind of rage or anger that's something that elvis takes and develops in kind of more sophisticated and more interesting ways and pump it up is a, is a really good example of that so you get all the stuff that i love in his lyrics all the the word play all the kind of sonic games he plays where the the words he's not just rhyme at the end of each line like a conventional pop song they rhyme all the way along the line as well mm-hmm. so there's this kind of mash of of noise i'm knocking my microphone in my excitement as i roll <laughs> my hands round and about um, he said, didn't he, that it was a it was a kind of response piece to subterranean homesick blues. Mm-hmm. And I, I can sort of see that. And I can sort of see the way that he's doing one of the things that he does really well has to do with that that musical sophistication that he has in, in fact, omnivorous musical tastes. And he's really fascinated by the history of popular music and he's always exploring a different angle of it. But when he reworks that material, it comes out different it comes out in this kind of distinctive way and subterranean homesick blues is a great song obviously but i think bump it up is better elvis said of this one all it took was some gin some tonics some blue pills and a red pen to write pump it up during my first exposure to idiotic rock and roll decadence i thought myself above and beyond it but quickly found it easier to indulge than to sit in judgment Uh, recorded at eden studios in london over winter 77 into 78 and released on this year's model in March 1978, recorded, of course, with the attractions and produced uh, by Nick Lowe. So from that very frenetic song, the next one that you've chosen for is uh, really pairs things down musically, uh, and you're taking us to, what, five miles outside London with this next choice. Brand new Talking about the splendor of the Hoover factory I know that you'd agree if you had seen it too It's not a matter of life or death What is, what is It doesn't matter if I take another breath Who cares, who cares This is my 80s track, this is Hoover Factory Which was a, a B-side and, and quite early in the 80s and I really struggled with the narrowing down Elvis's output to just one song from the 80s. And this is, not, this is not Elvis's greatest song, and it's not the song that I, I come back to most often, but it is such a good song. And what I like about it is it's, it's kind of perfectly put together as a pop song. It's beautifully made. The, the melody line is exquisite. It's about this building in West London. Um, and for quite a long time i lived first of all in wandsworth and then we lived in putney so kind of south west london and i 
work at well Holloway, which is outside the M25 west of London. So I would drive up and down the Western Avenue and you'd pass it. And it's an amazing building, the Hoover factory. And it's, it was the factory that the Hoover company made in this beautiful Art Deco style. I think it's been converted now into luxury apartments, but at least it hasn't been pulled down. Mm. And it is just off this gigantic kind of dual carriageway that runs in the A40 in and out of London. Mm. And I know that Elvis was living at the time kind of Ealing way. And I know that because uh, I had a colleague at the university for a few years, when she moved on uh, to a different university after a while, but she and her husband bought Elvis's house oh, when wow. he moved up and it was a house just it was a regular house at that point just in Ealing in West London so I remember, I remember her telling me this over lunch in this in the staff common room and I said you bought Elvis's house that's amazing what was it like expecting her to say you know it was a rock star's house with a huge sex dungeon and a swimming pool with a car in it but it wasn't it was just a regular semi-detached house yeah. it's quite early in Elvis's career the only distinctive thing that she said was the bedroom was wallpapered with black wallpaper, which I suppose is a little bit rock and roll. <laughs> it's not very rock and roll. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, the thing I love about Hoover Factory is it's an exquisite little song, and he just kind of tosses it away on the mm. on the B side. It doesn't mm. really. It's not on any of the main albums. It's it's he's at this stage in particular. He's so prolific with with amazing songs and brilliant music that he can afford to just almost discard this. Yeah, released on the B-side of Clubland, and then people will have found it on Taking Liberties and Ten Bloody Marys and Ten How's Your Fathers. And it kind of continues that tradition of songs like Waterloo Sunset or Penny Lane, where the writer is finding beauty in the everyday. You know, these are things, as you say, that people pass every day. I go past Penny Lane every day, and, mm. you know, if, if that hadn't been turned into this wonderful song... It's just the same as the street you went before, you know, but these songwriters yeah. just see something in the mundane and the everyday and, and really bring it to life. Yeah, or the Abbey Road Zebra Crossing, which is just up there in St John's Wood, and you walk past and you think, oh, hang on a minute, that looks familiar, but you're right. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's really interesting that you make that connection with the Beatles, isn't it? Because they're, you think of the, the sort of what you call the topographic songs, the songs about specific places that the Beatles recorded, and they're associated with Liverpool kind of ineluctably. It's no getting away from the kind of Liverpoolness of the Beatles. Now, Elvis is also from Liverpool, but that's that's not a place he writes songs about very much, is it? But he comes and he's living in, in London and he's working in what he calls the Vanity Factory and then he starts to make a name for himself and starts a career as a musician. And you do get songs like Hoover Factory or I don't, I don't want to go to Chelsea, but they do seem to me kind of outsider songs. And again, I suppose the musically speaking, the way he will just kind of absorb uh, like a, a sponge, the traditions of country and Western or, or, you know, bluegrass or whatever particular area of music that he's has caught his, his fancy. Is there, is there a London sound in the same way that there's a Mersey sound? That kind of kinks or who, like you say, Waterloo Sunset, there's something ever so slightly sad about it it seems to me mm. and I, the thing I, I and it's another thing i don't want to make a kind of large claim for Hoover factory which is a really really lovely song but as we were saying earlier it's not on any of those the kind of three great albums of the 80s blood and chocolate king of america and imperial bedroom and it is a song that kind of acknowledges that i'm writing a song about a building just off the a40 it's not a matter of life or death but what is mm. thinking there's something that draws you down to doesn't get too excited don't get too overwhelmed by the thrill the kick the wonder of of music and the way music and refracts our emotional life and our the way that we live in the world mm. it does actually it's, it's it's grounded in kind of ordinariness and i think that's that is beautiful and that is something it has in common with waterloo sunset i can see that connection that's really interesting mm. While we're in the 80s, this is the decade where you become an Elvis fan. Mm -hmm. What was your journey after getting Blood and Chocolate? Is that a case of then going and devouring the records that were already out? Yeah, so I bought, I, I went and bought everything. I mean, I, I bought all of Elvis, all his early stuff, many different formats. So yeah. then it was, I had a little Walkman um, back in the day, uh, a little cassette Walkman. So I bought all his earlier albums from 
Mine is true right up to Blood Chocolate and then as they came out on cassette. And it wasn't a very durable format, really, cassette tapes. They, they, eventually, the, the tape would just wear out and break. And then I'd sometimes have to buy them again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then CDs started happening. And then I bought them all on, I re-bought them all on CDs. And then he re-released all the CDs with extra material. And I bought many of those. And you, you get into the state where you're thinking, um, I'm being a patsy here. This is, this is it's, you know, it's cool to have this second CD disc, which has lots of outtakes on it and whatnot. But... You know, you don't want to become too obsessive. That seems to miss the point in a way of what Elvis is is doing. Mm. That slightly cult-like aura that surrounds some bands that people really, really get into. He's he is a more ironic artist, and he's he's standing at one in a strange angle to the many of the things he's writing about. And I think he's encouraging us to do the same as his fans, as his listeners. So yeah, so I bought I bought all his stuff, and then I just religiously bought everything uh, he released right through the eighties and the nineties. Um, so I started working at the University of London in early in 1990. 91 was my first year. Um, so then we moved uh, further out west in London. Eventually, here I am, west of London. It's all been in the same kind of axis in a way. And I sort of trace wherever I was living by the Elvis albums I was listening to at that time. Um, But I did find as it went on, I listened to the newer albums less than I went back to um, This Year's Model Mm. or Chocolate or whatever it might be. So those I just listened to over and over and over again. And then I did hit a kind of moment, almost of disillusionment, which was the album he released with Bert Bacharach. Uh, which I, you know, I thought, well, that's great. The two great songwriters working together. And I did, I liked it. The, the collaborations he did with Paul McCartney on Plows in the Dirt and Spike and various other bits and pieces, I thought they worked really well. I thought that's, that's maybe that's what he needs. He needs a songwriting partner. But I really disliked the Burt Bacharach oh, no. album, Painted for Memory. <laughs> it might be one of your favourites. It is know, one of my favourites, yeah. Okay, so no, I'm just like insulting you so to we'll your just, face. We'll bring the conversation to an end now. <laughs> okay, but what, so just tell me why you love, why you like it then, because... I just think they're wonderful songs. I Right. But both elements of it, the words and the music, just really appeal to me. I love how the Bacharach music would normally have... Scylla or Dionne Warwick stepping up to the mic yeah. and instead you've got the contrast with Elvis's voice going up against it and taking the songs into some really bleak places uh, and of course Elvis writing some of the music for that as well which fits in yeah. with what you were saying before as well about what a great and underrated melodist he is as well as being you know this renowned lyricist and, and vocalist of course um, but maybe that might be a, a timing thing as well Adam because you know, you go back to the songs that you first got into, and that would have been, yeah. I think, would that have been the second Elvis album I bought when it came out? So I was still in that phase uh-huh. where a new album upon release hits the CD for weeks on end, and I just, I yeah, just yeah. listen to it over and over again. So there's probably a little bit about timing for me as well. But having said that, it's still one that I go back to a lot now. I mean, that, you know, I've, I'm forgetting, of course, that you're young and vigorous and I'm old and <laughs> clapped out. So there is that factor. But the thing, I mean, the thing that strikes me, obviously I've been thinking about this because I, I knew I was coming to record this podcast and it's it's made me kind of question some of my relationship with Elvis. I'm not, not in a bad way, in a kind of healthy way, I think. There are albums from kind of later, from the 21st century, that I listen to over and over and over again and they're not necessarily... Um, esteemed albums like the soundtrack he wrote for the midsummer night's dream called il sonia mm. which is a purely instrumental kind of classical album which breaks the golden rule which is never get a rock star to write classical music because it's going to be awful classical music is great obviously but you know you stick to stick to what you're good at i think it works extremely well mm. and in part it works well because his his melodic gifts are so kind of richly woven through that i can i listen to that album all the time and i ought to appreciate the background because it is you're right the songs are now these are two greats of songwriting mm. some of it i think has to do with the way i mean it is my you know the time of life and things that were happening in my life and so on some of it i think has to do with elvis his vocal style does change in over the last two decades or so he started to sing with this kind of slightly club singer 
mannered style. He starts to put all this really heavy vibrato in, which I don't like. Uh, vibrato wide enough to throw a cat through, as the phrase goes. <laughs> and it seems it seems to me to sink a little bit into a kind of self-indulgence. You read the interviews with him when he was you know, just starting out, and he's kind of a bit staggered that everyone is taking his songs so seriously because he writes them really quickly and they come really easily to him. By the 21st century, I think he's starting to think of himself as, you know, an artist, mm -hmm. which he is. I don't begrudge him that. Maybe that's, there's something of that in the Bacharach album that I find a bit swampy. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I'm, no, I don't mean to insult your musical taste. It's a great album. I'll go and listen to it again. I'll try and fall in love with it. It's all right. What I'll do, I'll just edit this so it sounds a bit different yeah. and that you actually love the record. Um, yeah, okay. No, you know, just editing the sound of the donkey going hee-haw and then said that was my opinion. This is Dangerous Amusements, the podcast that seemed like a fine idea at the time. It's interesting in light of what you've just said about the vibrato and the singing style and some of the collaborations he gets involved in when we consider your next song, because we move into the 1990s for this one. This is the collaboration with the Brodsky Quartet, and the song that you've chosen from the Juliet letters is The Birds Will Still Be Singing. Summertime with us as the sunset. He wants to kiss you, will you condescend? Before you wake and find a chill within your bones. Under a fine canopy of lovers' dust and humorous bones, banish all dismay, extinguish every sorrow. It just sends shivers up my spine. I think it's the most exquisite song. So there's, there is, I think, a danger territory here, which is, this is kind of pseudo classical. And he was a bit mocked, I think, when he, he put this album out, or he and the, the Brodsky Quartet collaborated on this album. It did seem to some people a bit pretentious, and it seemed a, a, a far remove from the kind of good, honest you know, rock and roll of um, some of his earlier albums, My Aim Is True, and so on. And I, I'm aware of that. I'm aware of that in myself. So my relationship to music is, is you know, peculiar. I listen to music all the time. So I'm a writer, so I'm writing all the time. I can't write in silence. If I try and write in silence, I find a little voice in my head that says, oh, that's not a very good sentence. Oh, they won't like that and they'll laugh at you. It gets in the way of me being able to, to write. So I put music on. So I, I listen to music all the time. And most of the music I listen to is the kind of stuff we're talking about here, Elvis amongst you know many others. Some of the music I listen to is classical. There's quite a lot of classical music I really love. Um, and putting the two together, it rarely works, but sometimes it really, I think, really does work. And I think this is before, it's not, I'm trying to think now how, how much vibrato there is in the Juliet letters. Um, the things that, I mean, I've had conversations with, with friends who don't really like Elvis and I'll say, well, how can you, how can you stick his puns, let's say? Uh, how can you listen to a line like, you lack lust, you're so lackluster, and think it's anything other than kind of daft. And I do like his puns. I think puns are really interesting. I think puns are really expressive if they're done well. And I've had a higher tolerance than some, I suppose, for the kind of literary conceit of an album like this, which is that they're, he'd read, I think, in, a, in an interview, uh, an article somewhere that people were writing letters mm -hmm. um, inspired by Romeo and Juliet, as if, you know, these are real characters in the real world about their, their bruised hearts and broken love affairs. And he thought that was really interesting. So he writes a whole set of albums. I mean, this is a kind of, it's one of the things I still laugh about Elvis. The, the, the time Wendy James comes to him and says, would you write a song for me? And he says, yes, all right. And writes 12 songs for her just straight off. And then yeah. she recalls and releases an entirely Elvis penned album. Yeah. Thinking, it's hard not to kind of love that. It's one of the things that connect, I don't want to ramble all over the shop here, but it's one of the things that I that connects with science fiction, which is my other great passion, my other great love. Um, science fiction is also kind of like 
pop music like rock music is kind of an adolescent mode of art really and i'm kind of a superannuated adolescent given how excited i still get when you know there's a new episode of obi-wan kenobi dropping on the disney channel or whatever it might be yeah the science fiction i grew up reading which was written out of what they called the golden age in the 1950s and uh, the uh, pulps and the new wave of the 1960s was often written kind of like that people were writing they were being paid by the word they churned out enormous quantities of stuff Philip K. Dick would take amphetamines in the morning and write thousands and thousands of words and then would drink a bottle of wine to calm himself down at the end of the day. It's not a very healthy regimen, that. It's not good for you, but it's kind of rock and roll. And he produced this art at a blistering pace that captures some of that, the kineticism of youth, the energy, the drive, the kind of kaleidoscopic kind of splendor of pulp science fiction. And there's a lot of that in... The, the, the three-minute pop song can do some of that, I think, and it can capture in a less, um, I suppose what science fiction goes for is is a bit bit more, the thought experiment is sometimes a bit more cerebral, it's a bit more connected with ideas of science and technology, whereas what pop is, pop and rock are so good at doing is talking about our emotions and our passions and our drives and how we feel and how we feel about other people and what it's like to be in love, what it's like to have your heart broken, but to do that in this really kind of, direct spiky way that he's kind of demonstrated Elvis he's demonstrated he can do that over and over and over again and the Juliet Letters is a change of gear it's more measured and it's more considered and the songs are a little bit more literary and I just I really like that I'm sorry you'll you know sue me as they say no, it's a wonderful album, so I absolutely agree with you on that one. The Words and Music by Elvis, uh, recorded with the Brodsky Quartet and produced by them with Elvis and Kevin Killen, released in January 1993. And yeah, The Birds Will Still Be Singing, I think is one of the real sort of heavyweight tracks from that album, isn't it? It's the one I think perhaps more people would know outside of the hardcore fan base than perhaps some of the others, and deservedly so. It's a, it's a marvellous song. And I think there's the kind of keening line that he scores for the strings. Do, 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 do. I don't I think that will only work on strings. I don't think you could do the same thing with you know guitars or the keyboards or whatever else might be at his disposal. And I think it's a song that justifies the the exercise, if you like, of combining them was it's a really it, the, the lyrics are beautiful the melody is beautiful there's something genuinely kind of affecting and touching about it but it works because it's connected to this slightly different musical tradition of the of the string quartet going back to you know, schubert and beethoven and what have you i love it i listen to it all the time yeah Okay, let's move on to the next song that you're adding to the playlist. This one comes from the 2000s, and it's a song that we first hear performed by someone else. Well, I recall his parting words Must I accept his fate Or take myself far from this place I thought I heard a blessing The Scarlet Tide by Alison Krauss appeared on the soundtrack to the 2003 movie Cold Mountain, the film set during the American Civil War and featuring, among others, Jude Law, Nicole Kidman, Rennie Zellweger, Donald Sutherland, Natalie Portman, the track nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song. It's written by Costello and T-Bone Burnett, and Elvis's version is released on the 2004 album The Delivery Man. We'll rise above the scarlet tide That trickles down through the mountain And separates the widow from the bride We'll rise above the scarlet tide That trickles down through the mountain and separates the widow from the bride. Having said everything I said earlier about 
that kind of the, the energy, the kineticism, the drive of, of so much of Elvis. He does this kind of slow ballad really, really well. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer the Alison Krauss or do you prefer Elvis himself? I think my favourite version I've seen of it is the one where he's on an American talk show just playing it on his own on the ukulele. I can't quite remember which show it is, but I love the simplicity Mm. of actually seeing him perform it on the ukulele. I mean, I I love the version because I love the uh, vocals from Emmylou Harris and the chorus on Elvis's recording. But I think the Alison Krauss version is beautiful as well, more piano-led, and um, I would have heard that first. Uh, To this day, I don't think I've actually seen the film, but I'd heard the song because I knew Elvis and T-Bone Burnett had written it between them, so I sort of sought it out, even though he wasn't performing it. Um, but I think the version on The Delivery Man is beautiful as well. Mm, it's really just exquisite. And it's a kind of development of some of the perennial fascinations that Elvis has with you know, masculinity, and it's a, it's a cliche phrase now, isn't it? Toxic masculinity. But there are that kind of toxicity of, of male aggression and male violence finds its epitome in in war and this is just a really beautiful elegiac expression of that because it sees it from the point of view of of the of the widows the on the other side of this this line this red line trickling down from the mountain separating the the widow from the bride again i'm i'm, I'm you can hear the hesitation in my voice because i'm really conscious i'm a professor of literature at a university and uh, i don't want to come across as more massively pretentious than I actually am although I am actually quite massively pretentious <laughs> but I think that there's that the word that comes to me when I look at when I listen to these lyrics it's it's imagist it's like William Carlos Williams's famous poem about the red wheelbarrow and the white chickens it's just a famous that Williams wrote this poem and it's that's all it is mm. it's just it says so much depends upon this red wheelbarrow, these right chickens and, and, and the rain, that's the whole poem. And there's something of that here. There's a, there's a little bit more kind of point to it because it is connected with this American Civil War story. But the, it's the black bell tolling in the first verse that then kind of stands as a kind of imagistic contrast with this scarlet tide, the, the blood that comes out of the, the war that becomes a sort of line, like a, a line of thread red scarlet thread that separates um, a, you know, a wife from a, from a widow, mm. the possibilities of consummation from grief and bereavement. It's beautifully written. Mm. We think of poetry, you know, song lyrics, for instance, as having particular metrical patterns. And a metrical pattern is a balance of unstressed and stressed syllables. And we, that's how we speak. That's how words work. And you fit those words into metrical patterns that are kind of regular but there's another tradition, which is some vowels are long and some vowels are short. So that's the difference between you know, pull and pool. Uh, you can, the second vowel is long, mm-hmm. um, ham and haim. Uh, finding a lyricist who can write so that the lyrics metrically fit the rhythm of the music, but also a lyricist who has the ear to know when a long syllable will will work with the rhythm of the music that he's writing for and when a short one needs to go in there. It's really rare. Mm. And I thought about this a lot and I've kind of looked into it uh, in, in a slightly academic way. Um, Randy Newman is really good at doing that, I think. But Elvis is extraordinary at it. He's, he's, it's, a, it's a part of his kind of gift that people don't talk about. It's not just the, the sense of the words. It's the sound of those words. And I do think that's we rise above the scarlet tide that trickles down through the mountain and separates the widow from the bride. Fitting those words to the particular melody line and and arrangement that Elvis does, they could almost, if you just put them on the page, they could almost be a bit overdone. Uh, It's a slightly kind of gothic image almost, Mm -hmm. but because the music is so kind of exquisite and beautiful and because the words not just in terms of their sense which is what we're f- first talking about but in terms of the sound of the words and the way they they rhyme along the line like we were saying earlier mm-hmm. it's just a, an extraordinary package it's a, it's really it's just amazing to see how he constructs his 
songs. I mean, in interviews, I know he, he has talked about that. He says, I'm just a songwriter. I make songs the way a carpenter might make yeah. tables and chairs. Yeah. You think, oh, pretty, pretty uncomfortable chairs a lot of the time, <laughs> but he is a craftsman and he knows that. Yeah. And he knows how he's going to make all this stuff kind of work together. Yeah. And just a final thought on the Scarlet Tide. Although it was written about the American Civil War, there, there was something that gave it an added potency that it comes out in 2004, just post-Iraq invasion, where that is still very much such a big part of our consciousness, both in the UK and in the United States. And it just seemed to fit with a lot of public sentiment as well. I mean, of course, this song wouldn't have been that widely heard, I don't think, from the delivery man, but certainly for those of us listening to that record and who held particular views about what was going on in the world that just seemed to really resonate for me at least yeah and that's i think I mean, it's an important strand in what elvis does isn't it so there's thinking about all the songs he wrote as someone of irish heritage about the troubles in northern ireland thinking about a song like shipbuilding which is you know one of the one of the classic songs about war right? it comes out of the falklands war it makes you realize how long he's been doing this actually when you put it in those terms but yes of course that's right that's that's also what this song is about. Last lines walked for the tent. I stood out in the glorious rain. Knowing full well I can't go home again. Why as a ghost? Why as a when you're gonna rise up? Wise a ghost? The next song you've chosen, uh, this one comes from the 2010s or the teens, whatever we're going to call that decade, and it's the title track from the 2013 album with The Roots, Wise Up Ghost. I have to confess, I found it um, hard in a different way to choose my favourite Elvis song from the teens. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's consistently interesting. He's always trying to do some new stuff. It's one of the things I admire about him, that he's, he's not just doing the tours where he plays all of his army and Alison to packed houses every night and cashes the check. He's always trying to try something new. And one of the things he starts to do at this period is to revisit his back catalogue and to remake it and to remix it, which kind of connects with what we were talking about a little bit earlier, actually. Um, had he released the uh, Spanish model album, which is the, the this year's model. I mean, it's actually, I think it's the, the original track yeah. music tracks they he but he got various spanish language singers to sing spanish lyrics over the top which i think works really well I and mean, i really like yeah. that album i listen to it a lot this is a harder listen wise up ghost the whole album that he makes with the roots but he is some of it is kind of slightly new material some of it is kind of classic or older elvis tracks that have been deformed and stretched and given this as we're saying slightly doomy slightly sinister gritty vibe and some of it I think frankly works better than others but I do like the title track I think the title track is is amazing actually a, a cavernous kind of astonishing song mm. um, I listen to it a lot and in fact I wrote a science fiction novel and this is I am going to sound very I'm, I'm just going to concede now I'm massively pretentious what can I say <laughs> um, I wrote a science fiction novel which was kind of based on the philosophy of Hegel of George Hegel, the German idealist philosopher. Um, and Hegel believed that there was something he called the, the, the world spirit. No one's exactly sure what he means by it, but it is coming into being uh, over history. That's kind of what history is for Hegel. That's what all the struggles and conflicts mean. They're different aspects of this world spirit discovering itself. Um, he called it the Weltgeist. So the German for spirit is Geist, which is the same word as ghost. Mm. So I wrote this kind of pulp science fiction novel that riffed on Hegel's ideas. And I wanted to put in an epigraph at the beginning, a little quotation. I wanted it to be a line from Wise Up Coast because it seems to me a kind of perfectly Hegelian song, actually, when you're going to rise up, wise up ghost. Mm. So I put that in. Now, copyright is a tricky matter and publishers are very wary um you think you think you'd be allowed to i mean I, I teach creative writing so i get this with my students all the time they want to put in pop lyrics into their mm. you know, their novels or their short stories because that's pulpit part of the fabric of our our lives and it's a way of indicating 
particular historical period or a particular moment, something that's really important perhaps. And I have to tell them, you, you can do it in your university work, but you won't get it published because every single line of pop, you'll need to get permission from the rights holder and they can charge you whatever they want to charge you as a fee, assuming they give you permission at all, which they may not. Mm. If you want to quote a Beatles line in your novel, it will cost you thousands of pounds. You'll have to get permission, which they can withhold or not. So I contacted Elvis through his publishers and asked them, say, can I have permission? I'm, you know, I'm, can we talk about the permissions for this? And they never got back to me. So I had to cut it from my novel. Right. It's frustrating in the sense that you can't do that thing that pop and rock is based on, which is to remix, is to take, you know, the funky drummer drum line and put it into something new and exciting, is to take subterranean homesick blues, kind of reconfigure it, pump it up. That I, I do, as a writer, I, I would do a lot more of that if I didn't, if I, if I weren't scared, or if my publisher wasn't scared of this, you know, the estates of Tolkien and the Beatles coming down on you like a ton of bricks and taking the cleaners and the courts. This is sounding a bit more sour than I mean it to be. <laughs> I think it's, it's because the song itself is quite is quite doomy. It has that kind of slightly um, alarming vibe to it. Mm. Is it one you like? It is, yeah. It's relentless, isn't it? And this just great yeah. cacophony of noise that just goes on and on. I was saying to you before, I, w- I was playing it recently and my wife said, can you just turn that down while I'm working? It's very sinister <laughs> while I'm trying to do my work. Um, but it does have that real sense of foreboding about it, which I really like. And as you say, those uh, lines in there, you know, when are you going to rise up? I think it's... Um, I, I love the whole album, to be honest. I think it's a fantastic record. And yeah, this is a standout track on that record record for me um what was the line you were going to use i was just going to have that one line when are you going to rise up comma wise up ghost Mm. Uh, the idea of the you know this this ghost can mean so many different things if the holy ghost and we haven't talked actually about the way there's a kind of catholic thread that runs through a lot of elvis's works Mm. um all the way back to pump it up is is he plays all these wonderful games with the the lyrics and the words in that song um down in the pleasure center hell bent or heaven sent listen to the propaganda listen to the latest slander there's nothing underhand that she wouldn't understand but the the last line is uh, there's no use wishing now for any other sin as if his desire for this woman which is kind of bending him out of shape is is a sin actually in a kind of religious sense and it's never again never heavy-handed but there's something of that, I think, in in what he writes and how he sees the world. Yeah. The Holy Ghost. I mean, Holy Ghost is just an old-fashioned way of saying the Holy Spirit, and spirit is really interesting to me. There's something spirited in the fullest sense about Elvis as a as an artist, as a writer, and as a performer. And it is, you know, that it has this kind of slightly grandiose Hegelian side to it as well, where the spirit could become. The, the cosmos, the world spirit, the Weltgeist that needs to rise up, that needs to learn about itself, that to wise up. Another one of the things I've been thinking about lately, but why I keep going back to Elvis is he's not always easy listening, is he? He's not, you know, Mantovani strings. He's not something where you can just put it on and it will just wash over you. Quite often it is quite acerbic, quite rebarbative, quite difficult to to listen to. And this is one of those albums which is quite unsettling actually and that's there are times when you're kind of in the mood for that I pulled a pencil from the flower to tell just where my fortune fell about a body on my caution final song you've picked for us this one comes from the 2020s from the boy named if the track the difference yeah i, I love it I, this is a real i mean I, I hate the phrase return to form and particularly when we're talking about someone like elvis because he's so restless and he's constantly trying to in, reinvent himself and this does this isn't just kind of rehashing the vibe of you know blood and chocolate 
Um, but it is, it has something of that quality to it. And I suppose that's, it, it reminds me of the kind of stuff from the early 80s. But it's a great album. All the tracks on it are strong. They're all interestingly varied and different. And it was hard to think which one of them I was going to, I was going to select. I remember being a bit anxious about this album because the way people were talking about it before it was released, it was supposed to be very dark. It was about childhood abuse and kind of horrors. And I know that Elvis himself has had health scares and, and worries. You thought maybe it's just going to be dour and grim and unappealing, but it's not. It's a, it's a very varied and kind of alive album in lots yeah. of ways. Yeah. And I think the thing that really hooks me on this track in particular is, is the chorus that wonderful kind of rising melody line that he sings all the way up. Mm -hmm. Do you know, do you know, do you know, rising all the way to a kind of, to some kind of melodic stratosphere. It's a, a beautiful song. And I like, again, this is touching on my kind of literary sensibilities a little bit. It's kind of a sort of twisted fairy tale, isn't it? It's kind of got a slightly Grimm's tale vibe to it. It's odd story and mm -hmm. a kind of dark story about yeah. this, this girl who, kind of eventually takes a revenge do you by chance know wrong from right is that yeah. is there any chance that you know <laughs> something there's a difference between good and evil that yeah. kind of finally pays out but just the the again the energy of it the, the glorious kind of rise in the chorus i love it it's really really good the whole album's really good not at all downbeat it is and um Elvis had talked about the inspiration for The Difference being the 2018 Polish movie Cold War, directed by Pavel Pawlowski. I've not seen the film, disclaimer. No, I've, so, not, I've not seen that. So I, can I only... call myself a fan. <laughs> I haven't even seen this obscure Polish movie that Elvis once watched. I've not even learned Polish just to watch this movie that inspired an Elvis song. What is the world coming to? Um, but Elvis explains that there's one character in the film who asks another about her mysterious history and whether it was true that she'd killed her father. No, she replies, but I used a knife to show him the difference, which then inspires this track. <laughs> yeah. He also wrote the Hey Clock Face songs, Revolution 49, and I do after seeing the movie because he did have conversations with the director and producer about a possible Ooh. stage adaptation and these songs were ideas for how it might have worked on the stage oh okay i didn't know that that's really interesting but you can see that there's again there's a set of kind of lyric thematics that come all the way through the album which are i wouldn't call them polish necessarily but you know red roses and and dark forests and uh, something interesting is, is happening yeah Adam, it's been great fun chatting to you. Thanks so much for coming on. And um, I really appreciate you giving up the time. And I hope that you may go away and give Painted from Memory another go. I will, you know, I will do that. I literally will do that. I'll go and listen to it. And I'll probably fall in love with it now and think, well, what an idiot I was back in the early 2000s to dismiss it so quickly. It's been absolutely wonderful, Stu. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Adam. I really enjoyed that. In fact, so much so that I forgot to ask him all about his Elvis tattoo. That'll have to wait for another day, I'm afraid. Always leave your audience wanting that little bit more, that's what I say. I'll put a link to the Costello article that we mentioned in the description for this episode. Adam is on Twitter as at ARR Roberts. You'll find his novels in all good bookshops. Do buy them from one that pays its taxes. You can find me on Twitter at Dangerous Amuse. On Instagram, it's Dangerous Amusements. My website is dangerousamusements.co.uk. The theme music for the show is performed by Gary Mulcahy. You've been listening to Dangerous Amusements. Now go and hurl yourself into heaven before the gates close.